Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Ana Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Michael Walser, Professor Emeritus of Social Sciences at the Institute for Advanced Study, talks about his life and career with Nancy Rosenblum, Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government at Harvard University and Associate Editor of the Annual Review of Political Science. Growing up in a family of lefties during World War II, Professor Walser began writing about politics as a child, and for the rest of his career, he told the line between professorship and militancy. For over 30 years, he has co-edited Dissent, a magazine about politics and culture founded in 1954. He wrote 27 books and over 300 articles about topics ranging from just war theory to religion and civil society. This interview was recorded on March 12, 2012. I'm Nancy Rosenblum, Associate Editor of the Annual Review of Political Science and a political theorist in the Department of Government at Harvard University. I'm here speaking with Michael Walser. Professor Walser is professor, social science professor emeritus of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. He's the author, I believe, of over 20 books. Among them, the best known are Just and Unjust Wars, Spheres of Justice, Interpretation and Social Criticism, The Company of Critics, and an essay that's a perennial standard on course syllabi, Dirty Hands. There are two, his collaborative volumes on, Jewish, on the Jewish political tradition, and the culmination of that work, perhaps culmination is premature, is his new book on the Hebrew Bible entitled In the Shadow of God. We also know Professor Walser as an activist in left democratic socialist and anti-war causes and as a social critic. He's a frequent contributor to the New Republic and the New York Review of Books, and he's often embroiled in civil but politically ferocious exchanges on subjects from proportionality and war to distributive justice. And since his graduation from Brandeis University, Professor Walser has contributed hundreds of pieces to Dissent Magazine, which he's edited and shepherded for, I believe, about 30 years. Uh, Professor Walser wrote something about Martin Buber and the company of critics that I think applies to him, and I'm going to read it here. Buber was an extraordinarily prolific writer. He seems to have been writing all the time, turning easily from big projects to small ones. Read in sequence, they reveal the extent of his achievement, almost half a century of sustained and courageous criticism. Professor Walser was my senior thesis advisor in college, and I'm going to call him Michael. Tell us something about your way into politics and then into the academic field of political theory. Well, my way into politics probably had a lot to do with growing up in a lefty family during World War II. Um, I, uh, I, I started writing about politics when I was a, a child. Um, I published a little um, hectographed newsletter, mostly for my relatives, called Between the Lines, um, in which I um, broke with Henry Wallace in 1948 and endorsed Harry Truman after Henry Wallace made a speech about getting out of Berlin. Uh, so I, I had a kind of popular front upbringing 
Um, but that, that political tendency was dramatically reversed when I went to Brandeis and met various ex-Trotskyites. And what was their influence on you? Well, Irving Howe and Lou Kozer were independent leftists, um, democratic leftists. They were about to launch the magazine Dissent, and they had a two-pronged dissent um, against uh, the conformism and growing conservatism of American politics in the 50s, against McCarthyism on the one hand, and against um, Stalinist uh, apologists on the American left and the European left on the other hand. And I very much liked, I, I, I became one of their followers. So you studied with them as an undergraduate and took on some of their color. What made you go to graduate school? And what made you go to graduate school in, in political science? Yes. After taking the, the first course that I took with Irving Howe, I, I went home to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and told my parents that I wanted to be an intellectual. <laughs> a new career, right? And they asked the classic question, from this you can make a living. <laughs> the only way you could make a living was to become a professor right. and an intellectual on the side. So your academic work and your work as an engaged intellectual clearly have fueled one another over the years. Um, can you say something about how, and then maybe have there been occasions when you've seen a real tension between them, or uneasiness? An uneasiness sometimes, teaching, um, teaching courses on subjects that were uh, fraught, that were um, uh, full of conflict and, um, and where I was often uh, lecturing to students who were politically engaged also and sometimes often to my left. Um, yes, I, it, was, it was hard to figure out how to be a, a, a teacher and not a, a, a partisan since I was always being a partisan somewhere else. Um, in, in the 60s, I found that to be sometimes quite tense in the classroom, mm -hmm. during, um, especially during the, the various engagements of the, um, uh, when the students occupied University Hall at Harvard and when the dean called the police. And, Moments of like that, it was not easy to be a, a, a teacher. Right. Let me pursue this line a little bit more. You said that one of the reasons you entered political theory was that it was a field that gives you a license to defend, <laughs> to defend <laughs> political positions. In your lifetime, really the ideological enemies of uh, the democratic left and even liberalism has shifted, clearly, from communists, at least at the outset, to now political theology and, and uh, uh, um, uh, the rule of clerics and rabbis, and you actually began your work there in the 17th century, writing The Revolution of the Saints about radicalism and repression. And so there's a sort of an old question raised again, what purchase really can secular, liberal, or democratic socialist theory have against these total ideologies? What can political theorists do? Yes, well, that's not... That's not easy, and w one of the questions that I'm, that I'm still thinking about and hoping to write about 
is um, what, what I call the cultural reproduction of the secular left and how do you do it? Um, and I, I don't think that it can be done without uh, a critical engagement with, um, with religion, um, with traditional ways of ways of of life. It, the engagement has to be critical for because um, traditional religion has has very strong conservative tendencies. Um, and it has to be an engagement because um, religion has been such a, a, a powerful force in people's in people's lives, and and the left doesn't know. We can't replace that. I, I have this vivid picture in my mind of a of a funeral of a of a, an old a left a comrade we would call him. Um, he was Jewish, but atheist, secular, totally disengaged, and the funeral was 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 terrible because nobody knew what to say, nobody knew when to weep, um, and religion has that role in people's lives, and we haven't found a way to replace it, and so we need we need to engage with it in a way that we haven't done in the past. I'm going to ask you to come back to this in a few minutes when we talk about your work on the Jewish political tradition and, and your other things. But, but for the moment, another political question in this vein. You've written, and I think this is a wonderful line, after outrage, disappointment is probably the easiest emotion on the left. Young academics and intellectuals today throughout their life have really known almost only movement politics on the right. Um, I don't even know that they've had disappointment <laughs> so, so much as um, yeah, just the outrage alone. And you've, the temper of your work and the advice you give has been patience. Patience. I mean, you wrote recently, the mere fact that we on the left wanted reconstruction is no reason to be disappointed that it didn't happen. We have to paint an inspired picture. We have to get a majority of people to feel the need for change. This is the unalterable democratic element of your thought. And a way to change sort of festivals of protest into effective uh, political action. So let me ask you about the festivals of protest and some of the effective political action we've seen just recently, Occupy Wall Street, the union, and especially the state worker, pushed back uh, against uh, attempts to undo the union movement. Um, the heightened expressions of concern about inequality in America. What's hopeful here and what's meat for disappointment? Well, what's hopeful is that there are young people in the streets um, with, uh, with some passion and, and a commitment to uh, a more egalitarian society. Um, Occupy Wall Street isn't, wasn't, and it isn't yet a social movement. In order to become a social movement, it would have to, it would have to focus on um, 
a, a particular issue of, of, of material importance to particular people and it would have to mobilize the I mean, social movements are are movements of collective self-help it's not just it's not just idealists in the street it's votes for women unions for workers civil rights for blacks and you mobilize the people who are going to benefit from the achievement that you're aiming at um, and uh, there are there are people hurting in the United States today. There are the traditional poor and the newly vulnerable who could be, perhaps can be mobilized, but it has to be, there has to be a commitment to organization and mobilization. Um, and if you have to recognize that um, no left movement will ever represent 99% of the people, that's a populist or a, a fantasy, that's a populist fantasy. We, we represent smaller, smaller groups of, of people and we have to, um, until we can uh, create a new constituency of those people, we won't have a political impact. I uh, spoke with the graduate students in political theory uh, at Harvard and told them that I was going to do this interview and they sent me emails and suggestions for questions, many of which were about detailed arguments in, in some of your books. But one of these questions stood out and that is, can they aspire to have the dual career that you have, the academic and the engaged intellectual career? And I'm wondering, was it made possible not only by your rare gifts, that goes without saying, but by something about academic expectations and political publishing in the 1960s and 70s, say, that has changed? I think, I think that, that may be right. Um, there was a, a tolerance for people like me. Um, when I was interviewed for my first job at Princeton, I went from office to office of the senior faculty, and in many of those offices, there were copies of dissent with my art with one or another of my articles, which they were willing to take as uh, some indication of what I could do. Let's turn a little <laughs> bit to, to your um, academic work. Uh, you've reiterated in piece after piece um, certain universalist principles that should govern war and the possibilities for peace, and you've described it as a thin code, mostly negative, for example, uh, non-combatant Im immunity. I think in more recent ri writings, you've been a little less thin, <laughs> a little more positive. You've moved to what you've described as a little theory of global justice, where you've talked about natural duties and positive obligations, including humanitarian intervention. And I think not only now when it comes to massacres or famines. Am I rightly describing this movement in what you've written? I, I, th I think so. I think, um, I, I think that the, um, the spectacle of um, genocidal politics revived in the late 20th and early 21st century has pushed me to a more a more positive view of the possible um, um, uses of force, although um, I am—I I was very skeptical about the Libyan intervention, and I am very skeptical about a Syrian intervention. Um, I, I, I do think that. Um, 
I, I, I guess I always was some kind of a left internationalist. It was the use of force, particularly, that I was that I argued against um, uh, the use of force in other people's countries to um, to bring them the benefits of Western democracy or something like that. Um, now I'm I am thinking much more about. Well, one thing I'm thinking a lot about is the use of force short of war. Um, what does that mean? Well, in, um, I argued against the, uh, the war in Iraq in 2003, but I was in favor of the containment of Saddam, which included the no-fly zones and the inspectors and the embargo. And all of those involved the use of force short of war. We were bombing radar installations and anti-aircraft in order to sustain our um, the no-fly zones. We were bombing them on an almost weekly basis for 10 years, and that wasn't war, but it was the use of force. And I, I think we need to think about that, that realm between diplomacy and war. In, uh, there's an enormous literature now in moral philosophy and political theory, and outside it as well on global justice kinds of questions. And one of the things that sometimes is not addressed in these writings is who's the agent? Who are you talking to? Right? I mean, who is responsible for, for, for these things? Who should take it on? And there needn't be one answer to that, obviously, but what's your best thinking on it right now? Well, um I, I, I think there's a role for NGOs, a very important role for um, for all kinds of um, of non-governmental organizations that might include political parties and trade unions, but as well as groups like um, uh, Doctors Without Borders or um, or Amnesty International. Um, I think they play an important role. I think Human Rights Watch is actually engaged in, though they would never admit this, is actually engaged in regime change. That's what they, that's the goal, but it's regime change without the use of, of armed force. Uh, so that's, that's one area where I think we are, international civil society makes agency possible for a lot of different people. Um, and I think governments have a role to play, obviously, uh, in, uh, in, with foreign aid, with, um, uh, with, with programs that, um, that, I don't know, enhance democracy. Um, I think... Um, Maybe political theorists have a role to play in arguing about these, precisely these issues. I, I want to turn to just uh, two little things about spheres of justice. Oh, one is everybody is interested in the story of the genesis of this book out of your, the course you gave with Bob Nozick at Harvard. So I wondered if you could say something about that. And then I'd like to ask about the importance of this book for you and your thinking. You said that the that the argument that you made there, the distribution should follow the meaning the goods have in the common life of a particular community. 
aroused uh, accusations of conservatism and idiotic relativism, and right. it, it provoked you into thinking about the question of social criticism. So could you talk about those two things? Well, the, um, the, the book came out of um, arguments in philosophy that generated by John Rawls's big book. Um, the course that I gave with Bob Nozick was, um, was, I think, one of the best courses I ever, he, we ever gave, uh, much more work than any course I ever gave. It, Why was that? It, what made it more work? Well, because uh, partly, well, that we had this, we were, we were campaigning <laughs> for, the, for the approval of this, these 120 very, very bright Harvard students and graduate students. Um, and he was, ma- the, the, the course worked as, he would give two lectures laying out an argument. I would respond critically with one lecture, and he would respond to my response with one lecture. Then I would give two lectures, and, and so on. Uh, and we, it, it just, it was a lot of work to produce those, uh, those lectures. And a lot of the work that later became Spheres of Justice went on in that uh, semester. Right. Um, the first thing I produced was an article in Dissent called "In Defense of Equality," which came right out of those uh, of those of those arguments. Um, and then uh, I I I I felt that um, I never believed that there could be one way of life that was just and good. For, for all people in all times in all places that never made sense to me people are human beings are creative they create cultures they create religions they create politics and they don't do it according to a, a fixed formula so I was I, I always thought that um, any theory of justice had to accommodate difference and um, I, I also I also believed that um, focusing on things, the things that were being distributed, would be a way of producing a pluralist account because there are many things and because they are imagined differently in different times and and places. So um, and uh, social meanings came out of. Um, I, I was reading a lot of anthropology in those days, partly mm-hmm. under the influence of Clifford Gertz, who mm-hmm. was, I, with whom I was very close when I left Harvard to go to the Institute. The three years be- when I was writing Spheres of Justice, I was spending talking with him a lot and reading anthropology. Um, I, 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 I don't think... The theory of social meaning has been has been criticized a lot because people take it at the wrong level. People tell me, but everybody disagrees about how health care should be distributed, so how can you say there's a social meaning? And then I say the level of, there is a level of agreement about the importance of physical health and longevity in our culture, different from all other human cultures. 
when, when Descartes said um, that physical health and a long life is the highest good, that was a revolutionary statement. There had never been a civilization that made that the highest good, but that's our civilization. And the arguments about how to distribute health care follow from deep, deep understandings of, of the good that's being distributed is longevity. That's the good, it's, and, and it's not what this doctor does for this person. That we, we need to interpret the meaning of longevity in our culture, and we get to the arguments that we have on, about health care. That's the way it works. And, um, and I don't think that's a conservative uh, doctrine. Now, the, the, most, the criticisms that bothered me the most were from feminists. And I'm, I'm still um, in my head going, living through those arguments. Um, give give those me an example arguments. of that. Well, the, the, it, it, these arguments also relate to questions about consciousness and false consciousness and consciousness raising and all of that. I, I, I have this view, which may be wrong, um, that there are two kinds of feminist history written in the 60s, 70s, 80s. One kind is a tale of oppression, passive acquiescence, false consciousness. And the other kind is anger, resentment, secret resistance. And if you accept the first view, then the theory of social meanings looks like it's going to produce disastrous consequences. But if you accept the second view, then you can get a much you can you can get you can develop a much more critical account and i always thought the second view was right also for i also didn't believe in the doctrine of happy slaves which i which was the doctrine of the slaveholders and i thought the doctrine of female acquiescence in their insubordination even if feminists, some feminist scholars adopted it, is a patriarchal doctrine. You wrote a wonderful nuanced essay on Simone de Beauvoir that addresses some of these themes, and I hope uh, people will read it. Uh, continuing on this theme in a slightly different way, asking you to comment on political theory, the state of political theory today. You began in history, and you've always used historical cases to talk about war and distributive justice, but you've also engaged with academic moral philosophers who write a very different kind of work, much more abstract and systematic in terms that we now call ideal theory, though even non-ideal theory is very, very abstract. <laughs> I wonder what you think has been gained and lost by this philosophic turn and by the turn away from the commitment to history by political theorists. Yes, well, um, I think I, I have written a, a, a very personal polemical piece, um, which I haven't published, on called "What Is Just War Theory About," um, which is, and and the argument is simply that for many many contemporary moral philosophers writing in what has become a minor industry, just war yeah. theory is about just war theory. Its, its subject matter is just war theory. And I think the subject matter of just war theory should be war. <laughs> and the same thing has happened if you look at a journal like 
political theory. An awful lot of the articles are about political theory and not about politics. The subject of political theory should be politics. And, and therefore, political theorists need to know political history and they need to, they need to read <laughs> a part of what they need to read is journalism because journalists don't write for each other the way professors increasingly do. Our audience is uh, uh, political scientists who read the annual review of political science. You taught for many years in politics departments where you had colleagues who were really first-rate social scientists. Yes. Did you engage with them? What did you give? What did you get from that group? Uh, did I, I've, I've recently been wondering, because of Jim Wilson's death, what I learned from him. Um, and I think probably, to my regret, I resisted learning from, from those people, um, from Huntington and, uh, and Jim Wilson and some of the others, even Bancroft. And, um, we thought of theory as something else. Um, the people I, I was I most engaged with at Harvard were Stanley Hoffman right. and, and Dita. I think many young political theorists today are bridging this divide between what we call normative theory and political science in interesting ways. Um, Jeffrey Isaacs, who edits Perspectives on Politics, I think tries to do this really quite deliberately. Mm -hmm. And I will probably see this as a fruitful development. Yes, yes. He's written for dissent. <laughs> right. Um, one last question. Since your early work on Exodus and um, liberation politics, you've gotten what you describe as a second education in, Jew in the Jewish political tradition. And to reconnect with this position, you and your co-editors have organized volumes on the Jewish political tradition, on authority, membership, community, war, and exile, where you have contemporary people reflect on biblical texts and commentaries on them. And now your own book, In the Shadow, In God's Shadow, um, on the remarkable achievement, really, and the puzzle for political theorists of how this Jewish nation could have held together for 2,000 years without a territory and without a sovereignty and without a developed theory of politics. And I wonder if you could talk about what your hopes are for the series, The Jewish Political Tradition, and then for this book. Well, the... the um the, the volumes on the Jewish political tradition are, are aimed, first of all, at denying that Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews have a monopoly on this material. Um, and we aim to make it not only accessible to non-Orthodox Jews and to non-Jews, um, but also to treat it as um, a literature that is subject to criticism and not just to pious defense and repetition. Uh, so the, um, the style of the book is um, texts and commentaries, and we ask the commentators to join the argument of the texts, um, not just to contextualize them, but to tell us, is this a good argument or a bad argument? Does it need to be revised or repressed or repeated or what? Um, and that's something quite 
new in uh, in this. Uh, this is a new way of dealing with, especially with uh, Talmudic uh, literature. Um, and what I would, what I hope for is that there will be a generation of people, of young people, um, and of including left and secular Jews who will engage with this material and, um, and incorporate it in their own um, lives uh, and, and therefore um, create something which um, which their grandchildren will admire. <laughs> Michael, I want to thank you for taking the time for doing this interview and for providing us with a model of political theory that we need and um, for holding a mirror up to us month in and month out, year in and year <laughs> out, which we have to face ourselves as... Um, well, as members of groups and as citizens and, uh, of course, as academics. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening.